Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. 
I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Arsenic and Old Lace is over. Charge! <laughs> <laughs> Andy Nelson, we've made it to Cary Grant. Good grief. It's about time. It is about time. Uh, we I mean, we've talking, talked about him before. <laughs> we have, but but uh, we've never done a, a series of the of the Grant's Cary. That's right. Uh, films of the Grant's Cary. And and uh, so it's fun to, to fill in some holes. We've got some holes with some delightful movies. Three films for this very series. Why, sir, are we talking about Cary Grant? Dear Archibald Alexander Leach... Archie um, Leach. Archie Leach. Yes, Cary Grant. Uh, you know, we've talked about Notorious, Only Angels Have Wings, and The Bishop's Wife. I believe are the only films of his that we've discussed on the show. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's an actor who is just, uh, he's he is a movie star, right? He is a full-on movie star. I don't think you yes. watch a Cary Grant role or Cary Grant film to watch uh, a performance of him where he just disappears into a character. <laughs> But he's just, he is full-on movie star charm. He's great in comedy. He's great in thrills. He's worked with, you know, all the big directors of the time when he was out there. And I think he's just a really fascinating uh, performer to just discuss. And so I think that we, I mean, we just love watching his films and seeing what he does. And we said, you know, he would be, he would be a, an actor that is worth doing more shows about just so we can discuss more of the work that he's done so uh, so here we are here we are we are talking about uh, tonight arsenic and old lace based on the play uh it is a farcical story of elderly euthanasia elder <laughs> against elder murder <laughs> Uh, the the story uh, it tells the story of these uh, two lovely old ladies, and they have taken it upon themselves as part of their charity uh, when a, a lonely single man comes to rent one of their rooms in their house. They poison him and uh, murder him pleasantly and bury him in their cellar. And so, you, so much humor comes out of that premise. It is a movie with complex layers of humor, jokes upon jokes upon jokes. Uh, and right in the middle is Cary Grant playing a bumbling guy. If I have any excuse to look at the film with sort of that sidelong glance, it's like Cary Grant this is a movie that it feels like he's actually having to work to to find the character for. <laughs> you know, you can sort of feel that this is a character that might be um, uh, uh, less of a Cary Grant type, uh, more of a Jerry Lewis type, right? This would have uh, been a little bit later. You get a little bit more of the the goofiness. Uh, you know, I don't know. He was you he love was him. plenty I know. goofy. If you look at he's like bringing a baby, so he's handsome. plenty goofy in that film too. Oh, Philadelphia Story. That's another one that we've talked yeah, about on the show. Yeah, I can't you're believe right. I forgot you're that right. one. I think that uh, that there is when Cary Grant is doing this goofy kind of performance because I mean I definitely think that this is more like a bringing a baby type where he's big and over the top. And Capra pushed for that. You know, Capra and uh, Cary Grant hated 
his performance in this film. This is, uh, I think, went down as one of his least favorite films that he had been a part of because he just hated what he did in it. I think that he had said um, in a conversation to his daughter, he said, "Egads, all the overwrought double takes, all the gags, I'm way over the top." Um, he just he said they would have been better off getting someone like uh, like uh, James Stewart to be in it because he just really was yeah. unhappy with what he did. But that's what what uh, Capra was pushing for. All these broad, big takes, all those kind of double takes that, that Grant does uh, over and over again throughout. That's what Capra wanted. And I think that's probably because it is an adaptation from a stage show, a very successful stage comedy that uh, that you know, Capra had seen and really wanted to kind of bring it to life. Uh, Joseph Kesselring was the the writer of the play. He really wanted to bring that to life and wanted to do it real quick because he was getting ready, Capra, to ship off. Uh, he had signed up to go over uh, to film stories um, as part of the World War II effort. And he had a small window of opportunity to make something needed to get a little more money uh, for his family before he went overseas and um, saw this and thought this would be a great thing to do. And from my understanding, even like even the writers thought Cary Grant was way too big. And apparently Capra was going to go back and redirect some of the scenes, some that were a little too big and broad. But at the, toward the end of photography uh, is when Pearl Harbor was bombed. And Capra just really wanted to get um, on to go film his uh, overseas stuff, and they never did any retakes. So I think it ended up being a film that uh, that Grant just wasn't very happy with because of how big and broad he is. Does it work for the film? I would kind of argue it does. I think that there is this over-the-top nature to the movie anyway, and I guess I, I didn't have a problem with Grant being so big and so broad. It doesn't mean that I like would call it like a five-star classic or anything, but I do think <laughs> it fits with the tone of the film. I I stand, I think, with the writers and with um, with Cary Grant himself. I, I, I it, It's a little bit too much, and it, it's just outside of type. And I struggle with that because, you know, there are sequences, comedic sequences, that demand a certain physicality. And, and you've already mentioned the, you know, the turns to the camera and those sorts of, of, of facial ticks. But the, the pieces that I struggle with that I don't think Cary Grant handles... Uh, as naturally as as easily are the bits where he walks into a sequence of chaos and has to somehow not hear or see obvious things that are going on in the room in order for the machinations of the joke to work. And on a stage play, that works much more easily, I think, than it does on camera, just because of the natural sort of, you know, the way the the, the film works. We already know we have a, a better sense of perspective than, um, you know, than, than in a, a play. I think with a bigger stage, you can put characters, block characters so that they can maybe not see the activity on one side. But we we have that sequence. So when he walks in and ha and people have to say, you know, shh, 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 don't worry about it, don't worry, or do, do this one thing, there are a number of sequences where he just moves his mouth, just like, and suddenly is shocked into uh, awareness <laughs> and those bits of humana 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 to shock are so wildly out of sorts coming out of Cary Grant's handsomeness 
I just can't believe believe he's doing it. <laughs> and and I know that those kinds of moves are possible. And I think Jimmy Stewart is a great example. I think he probably could have pulled those kind of things off. I think just I, I think you're looking at a guy who is um he he's he's just too exceptionally debonair to pull that off for me. Uh, see, I I don't think that, and I guess I don't have a problem with Grant as the performer himself. I just because, and I, I mean, you know, I, I guess I, the his Cary Grantness doesn't come into play for me. I, I do think that there are times where it's a little big and a little broad. Uh, there are times where it works for me and other times where it doesn't there are times where he's kind of mumbling around and trying to figure out like who to call and stuff while things are going on behind him and he just seems clueless that I'm, i i don't buy quite as much but an example of a time that i bought quite uh i thought was very effective was when um he's talking to dr einstein and uh he's telling him this kind of this about this play that that didn't work at all for him and why and what was great about the way that that was written is that he is being just as clueless as the character that he's describing because behind him is his brother doing exactly the same things <laughs> getting ready to do the same things to him that uh that he's describing and so like when it was written really sharply like that as a part of the play element i found that it worked really well I mean, you know there there are times where it's just not as strong but on the whole i felt that it was it was pretty fun and i don't fault his handsomeness <laughs> For not working, <laughs> I I think that scene that you bring up is is uh, a, a great example of when it works, when everything about it works. Even though I still think he's too debonair for to to fall for it, I just don't want to buy it. And and I recognize now it's it's probably just because I have some level of professional crush on Cary Grant. Like just <laughs> come on, man, don't let these don't let your brother set you up like that. Um, I, I think that there is something really to that scene because of the way it pivots and how how just sort of taut it is that it starts with uh, uh, Peter Lorre's character trying to actually help him and turns into Peter Lorre's character as complicit in uh, the act of restraining uh, uh, Mortimer. And, and I think that is just a divine twist with the addition of Jonathan into that scene and that that just the way they block that threesome I think is just perfect. I think it's high comedy and and works very very well. And I think that uh the writers the the uh the Epstein twins recognized that when they translated the play to the to the screen and they didn't change a lot of those sorts of elements because it worked well in the original uh, in the original uh, Broadway version of it, just keep it going because that's that's what worked so well. And I think that's why it largely was uh, a, probably just a, at least a financial success, even if there are elements that don't necessarily hold up as much because of the way that some of it plays out. And it does end up feeling a little more uh, stagey. And, and I think mm -hmm. that ends up being the issue more so than Grant for me is that it feels very much like uh, a stage show. And in a stage show, moments like the things that are happening uh, in this film, you buy them more because it's taking place on the stage and you kind of are, are letting that element uh, in your mind kind of go by the wayside because 
it is a play when it is translated to a real location in a film and you have somebody in a room very physically right there with other people and he's just not noticing it 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 does end up that the reality of what happens when it's translated to film does make it a little harder to buy it's but i mean we just have got are coming off of our francis weber series and with all the the broad farcical comedy in those films i i guess maybe i'm just in the mood for this sort of thing because i end up kind of it it works it, i buy into a lot of that over-the-top nature here um and it's i mean but i mean grant definitely i think is certainly the most egregious of it with a lot of his kind of just big very very big yeah. reactions that he has to things um but i mean i'll tell you largely they made me laugh out loud so so i guess <laughs> well, to that extent they weren't yeah. i'm not saying i didn't laugh i'm absolutely not saying it i laughed hysterically i watched it with my daughter who had never seen it and and we were it was uproarious it was wonderful uh speaking of uh that uh the francis faber series you know who could play a great mortimer brewster that's steve carell now that's a guy i'd like to see in that role that would there be I, good. He'd there, be great. I fixed it. He'd be great. I fixed it. You know who else would be good? Who? Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd. <laughs> Either of those two would be great in this movie. They would be twice as good as they were half as good in their own film. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about about our uh, old ladies, can we? Ah, uh, the ants. The ants. Abby and Martha, Josephine Hull, and Gina Dare. Uh, I I love these ladies. I don't trust them. <laughs> what I love about meeting these two ladies, and, and this is why I think this play and film work so well, is because you're taking these these bits of uh, kind of you know moments of these or these these broad character pieces, and you're really kind of twisting them for laughs. And we didn't even mention this with Cary Grant, but he is, uh, he's a, a critic, like a theater critic, and he writes books that are all like anti-marriage. And we start, <laughs> right. we start the film off with him. Uh, well, we should mention the weird little baseball bit uh, that I will talk about. But otherwise, it starts with him and the love of his life uh, from next door, Elaine, at the marriage office, getting a marriage certificate in secret because he just want people to know that this person <laughs> who writes anti-marriage books is now getting married. And then you have these cute little ants, uh, beautifully played uh, by the two women who created the roles on Broadway on the stage. And they are just so delightful and so loving. But here they are killing people and burying them in their <laughs> cellar. And I think that's that's the, the great comedy of this film is just all of these clever twists that they have on these characters. I, I love these two. I, I think they're just charming. And, and that's what makes the movie work, I, I think, so well is the fact that that they provide the black beating comic heart of this movie, that they are so kind and so clearly generous uh, with their attention and so loving and so deeply revered in the community that both of them sell that and the sort of dawdling confusion around uh, how many people that they actually have buried and the fact that they believe so completely in their charge as sort of the angels of mercy for these poor men, that they don't hide it from anyone. They don't hide it from anyone. And that is the central sort of, um, uh, th that's the central um, angle for much of the humor 
once Mortimer gets there is this idea that this thing has happened and we're going to prevent this thing from getting out so that we can somehow protect the ants. Um, and and his efforts to do that are foiled around every corner. Uh, but but the ants, the way they portray their uh, love of mercy is um, is sublime. It's just great. And I mean, Abby, Josephine Hull, the way that she the way that she moves across the room is like this, like a little bouncy, like floating fairy. <laughs> it's just, it just it made me laugh every time we got to see her on screen. And an interesting tidbit about Gina Dare, she had uh, 20 years prior to this, she had actually worked in a, in a touring show with Cary Grant, and actually he had contracted rheumatic fever, and she nursed him back to health. So they had a long history together. Um, and so, and those two, along with John Alexander, who plays um, cousin <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt, those three uh, came from the original show and uh, were a part of uh, the film. And I think that they just bring a lot of life to the story. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, his, you know, that that whole character and that whole angle and the way they use that sort of shock humor of either the bugle or him screaming charge over setting us up that it's a very quiet, it's the middle of the night and he is suddenly screaming. I mean, those sorts of of jump laughs uh, are uh, are really well placed in this movie. It's just an sort of uh, expert timing. Uh, and and it feels, again, like these adaptations of moving from stage to screen, these people who play such critical parts, you can feel that they are rehearsed. We just talked about this uh, in our, our Weber series that, that, that um, you know, when you get a cast that can move, you know, it, largely intact to screen, it, it has a different feel to it. They really feel like they've inhabited that role for quite a while. And and uh, it works. It works really well. I think that they all have great chemistry with uh, with Grant, and I, I just feel like they bring a lot to the story here. I guess they had left the stage show. They were given an eight week leave to film um, this movie, and then they came back to the stage show. But I guess that you know the the way that it worked was Warner Brothers when they got the rights to make this they they it it came with the caveat that they could not uh, release the film until it had uh, ha- left its first run on Broadway which lasted 3 years so they actually had their 8 week leave went back to the stage and then they stayed there for the next 3 years <laughs> and the movie didn't it was made in 1941 it didn't get released until 1944 and so it just kind of, uh, you know, they had to keep it on the shelf until until the stage show was done. So, um, uh, but, you know, it was great that they got to keep going. The one person who didn't get to join them was Boris Karloff, who was in the stage show. Who, he was a producer of the stage play, and uh, he played uh, Brother Jonathan. And uh, when everybody kind of was going over to the film... Because he was a producer of the show, they the other producers asked him not to leave because they didn't want all of their key cast members leaving. So he stayed on the show. And, uh, you know, the, sh- the great joke of the play is everybody saying, well, he looks like Boris Karloff when it, in fact, when it, it is, is Boris Karloff, Boris Karloff right. Right, playing the part. Um, and so it's Raymond Massey, I think, does a good job here in his makeup. But, uh, man, it would have been great to see Karloff in here as well. 
Yeah, it would have been fantastic. Apparently, there was some uh, potential legal scuffle. They actually had to get Karloff to sign a release saying it's okay for him to, to it was okay for Massey to be made up to look like Boris Karloff because he looked right. uh, he looked too much like him. I think that's fantastic. Alan Joslin played uh, played Mortimer, and they didn't bring him. It was yeah. just the the other three um, the three um, more comedic uh, roles that they brought over. We should talk then at least a little bit about uh, the some of the marriage gaffes, right? Uh, it, it starts with the opening sequence, which you already mentioned, but then it it does bring us uh, this sort of sea story that keeps sort of peeking into the overall story, which is uh, about Grant actually being uh, married uh, in the movie after, and and how funny it is that she is. She keeps coming in the house and is out of the house. She lives next door across the way by way of a cemetery and has to keep crossing the cemetery to come back and forth. I think it's uh, very, very funny uh, the way they they portray his uh, marriage. Yeah, Priscilla Lane, uh, she plays Elaine and, you know, she's she's a delight. She works well in this comedy. I think we talked about her on, uh, I think, just one other show, uh, The Roaring Twenties. Mm hmm. Um, although I just actually have seen her uh, recently in a film, Four Daughters, that she also had been in with uh, the Lane sisters, her uh, three of her mm. siblings that she um, performed with. I think she's great, and I think she taps into the comedy well. I don't think that she's maybe as over-the-top as Grant, and uh, probably to her favor. I, I think that she just really handles that side of the story well. It's not obviously as as big and it ends up feeling like as you said it is very much the sea story she kind of gets kind of left by the wayside and kind of pushed out by grant in all of his um or specifically by mortimer in all of his uh, kind of panicky uh you know kind of protection of his aunts as he's trying to figure out what to do um i I think that that story ends up being uh you know i i, I love their relationship but I end up getting I wish that somehow they had found uh, more of a way to tie her in directly. Yeah, I, they did make use of their relationship with some funny jokes. And I think her general tone of just randiness, I think, was fantastic. Like, that's something that, you know, you could tell that they were playing with, dipping the toes into making this couple uh, actually, uh, you know, satisfyingly horny. For having just gotten <laughs> married and running away, right. uh, that that there this that everything else is kind of a distraction to where they need to be, which is going over Niagara Falls in a barrel. I I love that that callback that that that, that sort of keeps coming back around. Uh, apparently, there was a little bit of uh, controversy around this too. Well, yeah, I mean the, the the it was a little much for the board. I mean, you know, we've talked about this on a number of our uh, shows about some of these older films where. They had to uh, the kind of the production code would kind of step in when they felt that things were a little too much. And apparently there was quite a bit of sexual frustration between the newlyweds that the film had portrayed. And the production code asked them to uh, actually thin some of those scenes out. So this is, I guess, the thinned out version. <laughs> I don't know how much hornier they would have been. but uh, Right. And I'm so curious about the play, too, because I, I've never seen the play. Have you seen the play? I have. Uh, you know, I feel like <sighs> it's one of those plays that I feel like 
um, probably like a high school show or something, yeah. you know, it's one of those that's kind of everybody does it at some yes. point, right? I, I feel sort of jaded that I missed it. Like it just, I feel like high school, college, how did I miss that? I was part of the generation of kids that didn't get arsenic and old lace. And I resent that a little bit. I'm curious how, just how sort of randy it is, uh, the stage production, what they try to, to yeah. get away with, uh, right there uh-huh. too. Peter Laurie. Dr. Einstein. He has pop uh, eyes. That's a thing so. that you were allowed to say in 1944. That's weird. Oh, poor Peter Lorre. What, uh, what a great actor. I mean, we've talked about him a number of times, and he, he's just such a great, just weird kind of character actor who just mm-hmm. fits so well in these types of films. I just, I really enjoy Every time I get to see Peter Lorre on screen, I just think he is a quirky little guy who does some really interesting movies. I mean, I think most recently we talked about him in Casablanca, but I mean, Maltese Falcon, M. Mm -hmm. uh, What else have we talked about with him? I don't remember, but, uh, you know, he's he's just a great actor. and, And I think he works well in this sort of comedy role just as much as he does in something a little more serious. His final moment when he when he escapes, I just thought that was that was just top notch. <laughs> oh yeah, after well, especially as he signs as he signs that he's the doctor and and again these mistaken identity, right? The, the I I love these the gags that they play with the police being um both assertive and oblivious, right? Can you describe him? What what is his description in the circular? Well, he's about 5'3", speaks with a German accent, has pop eyes, uh you know, describing Peter Lorre standing right in front of the police uh chief and the <laughs> chief immediately says uh, puts his hand on his shoulder sort of uh, um, severely and says, so glad you were here, doctor, and sees him out. <laughs> uh, they, those sorts of moments, those sort of the way they play with these the, the tropes of farce, um, that, that this is a, um, you know, mistaken identity bit, I think, is uh, really well done. And not at all to understate the importance of Lieutenant Rooney, right, of, of James Gleason as Lieutenant Rooney, who plays a fantastic straight man to all of the just cavalcade of nonsense that is being pulled by his police officers uh, in the context of this. The playwright police officer, you know, the beat cop <laughs> who's just inherited the beat and has uh, he's describing a play about his own birth from his perspective. Yeah, it was... That was that was as perfect as uh, when we have uh, Mortimer describing the play that he had been in or he had watched, and they're doing the exact same thing behind him, right? Trying to yeah. catch him. Like I just loved Jack Carson as uh, as O'Hara and the way that he kind of was this passionate playwright police officer. Uh, just uh, he cracked me up. That was great. It was yeah. just great. I think we've talked about two films of Capra's, yes? Uh, I think only two. It Happened One Night and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? I believe you are correct. All right, so here we have our third Capra film. I think it fits in the scope of what Capra, in the range of what Capra is uh, particularly adept at delivering, right? This, you know, going from um, sort of a heart-rich story of Mr. Smith uh, to with the, to this, this sort of comic portrayal is not a stretch. 
I would say that there, I mean, there's, you know, meet John Doe in between this and Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I'm not familiar with that film. I would say, though, like from the other films, this one feels like he's allowing himself to just do something that's a little kind of uh, kind of just darker tone. Like, I don't feel like if you look through his other films before this, there's not a whole lot of darkness there. And I feel like this one, he's just like, yeah, I'm just going to play and do something that's a little you know, over the top and dark. And it's like real dark comedy. Um, and I think that that's fun for, for Capra, who otherwise I think always has so much heart and, and, uh, you know, kind of that sense in his films. So I love that he was doing something like this that just feels, it feels very much like a Capra film while also feeling like, like he's really kind of going dark for a change. Yeah, I, I think that's the that's the piece I like so much about it, right? Is that you can see it, this this definitely feels like an incredibly dark story with a Capra touch, right? It feels like it has a stamp on it, not just the way you know he he plays with the the. Um, you know, the big broad comedy of it, but the way he plays with the quiet moments, right? The sneaking around moments as they manifest in this movie, when he, when they turn the lights out, right? And, and everybody's sneaking around and there's this sort of diabolical tone because Jonathan is there and Peter Laurie's character is, is sneaking around and they have to drag the body through the window. Uh, there are, there are comic moments in, in the pitch dark that I think are, are particularly, particularly sort of Capra-esque, right? The way he uses sound and cat screaming and crashing down the stairs uh, in the dark to keep the story moving forward, I think, uh, are are particularly funny, fun moments. Um, And that we have over the top of all of these little scene moments, we have this overarching arc of, of, gosh, we've got to get Mortimer back in his wits. Uh, That's a journey that I, I feel like I'm willing to go on with Mr. Capra. Now, here's a question that I had for you. I mentioned it briefly. This film starts in the strangest way. We start at a baseball game. It's it's at Ebbets Field. It's the uh, and knowing that this film was was uh, filmed likely in 1941, or it was in fact filmed in 1941, and the story takes place on Halloween. Um, in the 1941 World Series, the Yankees beat the the Brooklyn Dodgers, and we're watching, like, we come in on a Yankees-Dodgers game at Ebbets Field, and it's like, you know, a, a brawl breaks out on the field, and the umpire just kind of lays there like, yeah, here we go again. And then we go, and then it says something like, what did it say? And across the river in the United States proper. <laughs> and we cut to like Halloween in in uh, New York. And I was just like, what a, What was the point of that? Like, why, why are we starting at a baseball game? And it's not something that's ever brought back. And I was like, is there a reason that Capra, like, is it just because it felt like very current at the time and he wanted to just place the film that otherwise felt very very much like a stage show in this one particular house or is like what's what was the reason for that and that's i guess that's all i can think of but it is kind of a strange way to kind of kick things off well i feel like this is one of those stories we and and we've been talking about this exact sort of thing uh when we talk about um kaja uh the birdcage right why they set why they choose to set these movies in places that they do because the joke part of the joke is in making that choice 
to the locals. Like somebody out there gets that joke. I wonder <laughs> if this is a joke you and I are not equipped to understand because one, baseball, that's, I'm speaking for myself. I don't want to speak for you, but I'm not baseball. Uh, and two, I'm not, uh, I'm not from Brooklyn. Like, I don't, I don't know. They do play, make a lot of jokes about Brooklyn and about what it means to go to Brooklyn and how hard it is to go to Brooklyn and how he never goes to Brooklyn. Uh, and I think that's very, very funny. And I wonder if it, if that is part of the gag that we just don't get. Do you think, do you think it's possible that, that there's an inside joke and we are not inside? Well, and I think especially because the Yankees did beat the Dodgers in the mm-hmm. World Series, I feel like, okay, so maybe that's some game that Capra is kind of playing here with that. And I don't know if he happened to uh, follow baseball. Like, I don't know if that was kind of his thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure uh, how that ended up being so um, relevant relevant in this particular film. But, um, well, you know, I will say Meet John Doe, which he did right before this, did have Gary Cooper playing a former baseball player. And so I'm wondering if it was just something that, you know, he was in kind of a baseball frame of mind because of having come off that film, because of the World Series, and just kind of just kind of thought it would be a thing. I like, I just, I don't know. And uh, who knows, maybe it was the Epsteins, uh, you know, they wrote that in there because they, uh, maybe they thought it would be funny. I just, I don't know. It's such an interesting, strange way to build, to kind of create this film that has nothing to do with baseball. Right. Nothing. It is, and, and is the weirdest choice to give us world building. <laughs> it just yeah. doesn't, it, it doesn't have any, any. Well, sort I will of say the Epsteins were uh, born in New York City. So okay. yeah. maybe they would know. Maybe they were uh, uh, Yankees fans and were happy to kind of do another dig against yeah. the Dodgers in here. Twist in the knife. Yeah. So I I think there is one more bit about the Epstein's and I I guess related to the to the production code right that there is a uh, potentially important twist at the end of the movie that uh, diverges from the end of the play. In the end of the play, the ants actually poison the man who is taking them off to the sanitarium. I don't know kind of I don't know why um, that's how the play ended, but that's. Uh, that that is what happened, and the Hollywood censors wanted that change. They did not want that to be included in uh, in the film. And again, it goes to kind of the way that censorship played out. We also do learn that Cary Grant is not of their bloodline, which he's thrilled to learn because, as we have come to learn over the course of the film, that bloodline uh, there is a a, a a thread of insanity that runs through it, and he's very excited to learn that he actually is not um, part of their bloodline. But in the in the uh, original play, he actually says, "I'm a bastard," and again, Hollywood censors would not let him actually say that in the film. I, I read an interesting note on the the um, the poisoning, and I think it was um, the the. Background on that was just that in that particular instance, it would have been the only example of someone actually drinking and killing himself on in frame. 
everything else in this movie is we never see a uh, a, a body in full, right? You never see a, a dead body. You see him carried over the shoulder, I think, at yeah, one point in the dark. Feet, right? Yeah, you see some feet. Uh, you hear some crashing and falling and kinds of things of bodies hitting the ground, uh, but you never see it and you never see anybody. Acting. There's a lot of that sort of dr- drinks up to the lips and then barely, oh, nope, something has interrupted <laughs> the process and they're all safe. But in this case, it would have been somebody who was actually drinking on screen in front of us and they die and uh, that was that was the reason as i understand yeah. it that that was yeah. not allowed there we go let's talk a little bit about uh we want to talk about Saul Polito behind the camera straightforward job yeah and i think that for a film that takes place on halloween needed to kind of be moody and have kind of a, a darker feel to it and it's a dark comedy anyway i think he clearly gets it and allows for shadows to play um I loved when when uh, <laughs> Teddy is coming up from the basement. This is in the night when he's going to collect the body and he opens that door and it's you can tell that there are lights like directly below the frame of yes. the door and it's like he's coming out of like this illuminated hell. It's it's like the strangest way to light it but it works really effectively. I I really enjoyed little moments like that in this film. I do too. The character lighting that he goes with for to to do the stairs and the and the the railing, which is very iconic, just sort of you know woodwork. I think it's it is really beautiful. And uh, again, the lights under not just the basement, the glowing you know ten million watt light that's coming up there, but they you know the lights under the doors to the kitchen. The way those lights help to um, sort of add character to these darker scenes, I think, uh, were really great. We've talked about him uh, reasonably recently. Uh, We talked about him uh, in Robin Hood, uh, Adventures of Robin Hood, Errol Flynn. Yeah, he also Um, did Now Voyager, which we talked about on the show. A while ago. I think those are the only two. I think so. Um, But I mean, you know, he I'm sure we will talk about him. 65 (laughs) credits to his name. He's got some... Busy boy. Busy, busy boy. One of the studio guys. Mm -hmm. We have Max Steiner behind the music. The music uh, get you? It was fun. I think it works well in context of what they're doing here with the film, you know, just allowing for it to be kind of a fun romp, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about Max Steiner in a number of films, Casablanca, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Uh, I think he uh, was involved in Gone with the Wind as one, you know. I mean, there's there's quite a number of films that he has been involved with, uh, small and big. As a studio composer, I think he does great with with uh, kind of the tone for the film here. So the ants ended up with 12 uh, bodies in their cellar, uh, but they Well, it's, it's 13 bodies in their cellar. But 12 were there. 12 that they killed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, apparently... That those numbers were low compared to the subject of the the potential inspiration, the original inspiration for the play. Amy Archer Gilligan was uh, she was a, a female serial killer here in the states, and apparently, I don't know if it's official or not, but um, she apparently was the inspiration for the play, and then this film as well. She was charged with poisoning two of her husbands, and allegedly up to 66 other elderly, um, quote, inmates of her nursing home, and she would use arsenic to poison them. So I don't know if her reasoning was the same, 
and you know just trying to kind of give them peace finally or if she was just kind of sick of them who knows that's an awful lot of people though to be kind of uh poisoning angel of death andy mm. angel of death yes. uh, this is obviously a, a property that has has spawned uh many many uh adaptations remakes still a play going on what else do we have that we should be watching if we're doing an arsenic and old lace series well, I mean, definitely, it's it, as we said, it was a very was and is a very popular play. It pops up often around Halloween. Broadway revivals have happened a number of times. Abe Vigoda has been in in it. Uh, Michael Richards has been in it. There were radio shows uh, back in the '40s that happened uh, shortly after the movie came out in the 70s richard pryor was actually going to be in a remake of the film i guess it never ended up getting off the ground but that would have been an interesting choice that i could see happening and it's just i i, I haven't heard of any others uh any other remakes that are potentially happening but i mean it just it's one of those the play keeps just kind of circling around it's just incredibly popular it's very funny so i wouldn't be surprised if this was a film that ended up finding its way to the screens at some point again you said michael richards and that is of course the a number one perfect casting for mortimer I know we have issues with Michael Richards and his comedy stylings. Like, there is some controversy about whether or not we should still uh, uh, be liking him. But my goodness, he has. Well, he he of course played Jonathan. That's the problem that I have with. I knew that that's what you were going to say. I I but I, I think he should have played Mortimer. I think he could totally pull that off. He'd, he'd have just as many double takes. Uh, I know, but I would granted. buy. I would buy his double takes. Coming out of oh, his I, face, I, I am shocked that you don't buy into Grant's double takes. Like he's just—he's like so him. great he's, at double he's takes. Fine, he's fine. He's, he's great. You need to go watch Bring Up Baby. Okay, uh, okay. Stop being so stop being so mean. <laughs> How to do it? Award season. Oof, boy, this was one that just was not the sort of film that people recognized at award season. Again, it also came out at a time when it w there weren't as many awards to go around. But, you know, it got none when it came out. The only award that I found that it had been nominated for was a recent one, 2013, the International Film Music Critics Awards. They nominated, um, there was a, a re-recording of the music for this and Don Juan on an album. And it was nominated for the best archival re-recording of an existing score. It lost to Quo Vadis, though, so mm. it did not end up winning. So, uh, poor streak in award circles. Did it make its money back? Well, Capra's delightful comedy cost a mere $1.2 million to make, which is about $16.9 million in today's dollars. The movie was released September 23rd, 1944, and did really well for itself, earning a spot in the top 10 for the year with a gross of nearly $4.8 million, or $69.6 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted profit per finished minute of about $450,000. is a solid spot for this Cary Grant vehicle. All right. I enjoy it. I enjoy the heck out of it. Even if I have, I'm going to say it, even if I have quibbles with Cary... <laughs> the new show. <laughs> uh, and so I'm I'm very excited that we talked about it. It is very funny. It's a movie that I need to watch more often. Uh, it's a good way to start our little mini-series here. What can I say? 
I had a lot of fun with it. I watched it by myself, but it's definitely one that I hope to put on at some point in the future and watch with the kids because I think that they would really enjoy it. Did you laugh out loud by yourself? I did. <sighs> That's a I sign. definitely did. And a lot of times it was at Cary Grant's double takes. <laughs> Oh, all right there all right let's uh let's go to the mat <laughs> let's Head over do to it slash the next reel you'll see every movie we've talked about on this show you swipe over in your show notes tap the word flick chart it'll take you straight to that movie in the flick chart catalog and you can add it to your list and see how it stands up against ours all right first up arsenic and old lace or in darkness well that's a uh sad pairing I am I'm going to say arsenic and old lace. I will say arsenic and old lace as well. Arsenic and old lace or Spike Lee's do the right mm, thing. And there we have it. Do the right thing. I got to go do the right yeah. thing. Yeah. Arsenic and old lace or targets. Arsenic and old lace. A Boris Karloff vehicle. How interesting yeah. is that pairing? Um I will I'll say arsenic and old lace. But I'm kind of torn on that one. Arsenic and old lace or judo. Oh, judo. Um, yeah, me too. Judo. Arsenic and Old Lace or The Born Identity. Born Identity, please. Born Identity for me as well. Arsenic and Old Lace or For a Few Dollars More. Hmm. I'll go with For a Few Dollars More. Yeah, I think I will too. All right. Arsenic and Old Lace or The 1978 Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead for me as well. Arsenic and Old Lace or Glen Gary Glen Ross. I think uh, Glenn Gary. Grant versus Lemon. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with Glenn Gary. Me too. Arsenic and Old Lace or Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead for me as well. That puts Arsenic and Old Lace in spot 171 on our chart. 171 out of 455 films. That lands it at about a 62%. 62% is pretty good. I am actually surprised. I don't know if I should be surprised. I'm sort of surprised it was as easy as it was. We didn't have any... Rochambeau. I we thought didn't. we might. Uh, how to do on your personal list? It did better on my personal chart. I I do find this to be quite an enjoyable film. I just think that on our show, we happen to have talked about a lot of great yeah. films. It landed in spot uh, 1231 out of 4366, which is about a 72%. And yet, on mine, Andy, even with my carry quibbles, it's at a 75%. That's right. Ooh. 362 out of 1451. I liked it more better than you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I'm to go by the algorithm over at letterbox.com slash the next reel, uh, this should be a four star film. And I am going to leave it at four stars. Happily with a heart. You? That's where I am. Four stars and a heart. A very fun time and a fun way to kick off our Carrie Grant series. All right, so where do we go from here? Where's our next Carrie conundrum? We are going to be jumping a few years. We're going to be jumping into the 50s. We're going to be looking at my favorite Hitchcock film, North by Northwest. So uh, I am very much looking forward to, you know, I just finished watching this and the rest of Hitchcock's uh, films because I was going through my Hitchcock uh, filmography, watching all of his sound films, and so I recently watched this, and uh, I I hit a point where I'm like, should I? It's not going to be long before we have to talk about this film again. Should I just wait and then finish my yeah. Hitchcock uh, film uh, chronology 
afterward or just kind of push through. And I'm like, you know what? I just love this movie too much. I'm totally okay with with watching it. Of course. And then watching it again a few weeks later. I so, appreciate there we that are. that gave you trouble. But of course, of course you watch it again. It's absolutely right. Well, I'm excited about it. I can't wait to see it. It's been uh, too long since I've seen it. And I think in that time, Steve has picked North by Northwest on the sat mat like 19 times. So we're going to need to... <laughs> We're going to need to clean the decks. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. There there are some serious problems that Amazon needs to work on regarding where they source these DVDs because that is, we should say, most of the commentary at the bottom of the barrel. A lot of people are very, very frustrated. But once you get through them, you find some people who are also very upset about the actual movie. Would Well, you did. <laughs> Okay. Okay. I have a different complaint. Oh, excellent. Well, why don't you go first? I have a one star by RSW who says, advertised as a colorized version <laughs> was not. Only colorized, apparently, on VHS tape. The page was very, very vague and confusing. <laughs> Would not have purchased this video had I known it was only black and white. Uh. It is still a problem for some now people. You, now you have to read movies and watch them without color? I bet RSW does not read movies I either. just about guarantee it. Well, I have one from Countach2 who says that this movie is an epic fail. I give this film one star because there isn't a zero. This is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. The movie has no plot. It fails as both a comedy and a horror picture. It isn't funny. It isn't scary. It's a complete waste of film stock and time. Apart from a few very short scenes and clips, this entire two grueling hours is spent in one room. Grant's over-the-top acting in this film is just ridiculous. There's a character in the film who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt. He says bully all the time, blows a bugle at random times, and yells charge and runs up the stairs several times throughout the film. This is funny? Really? On what planet? I have to think that people must have been easily amused in 1941 because it's hard to imagine that anybody today would actually find this movie funny. Cary Grant himself didn't like this movie either. Watching this movie is similar to watching an episode of Faulty Towers. Non-stop talk, 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 interspersed with yelling as one emergency flows into the next. This is not a relaxing watch. Part of the problem can be explained by the fact that this was originally a play, thus the exaggerated acting, non-stop talk, and one-room location. Unfortunately, adequate adaptation was not made for film. I felt like I'd been robbed of two hours of my life after watching this awful picture. If I can reach one person out there and save them from wasting two hours of their limited limited time on Earth, then my time in writing it will have been worth it. One star. Wow, I got pretty emotional there at the end. Right? What do you think? Did I do okay? <laughs> 
Oh, wow. I don't know if you noticed, but way back up in the beginning, uh, there was a, a line in there that said, this movie has no plot. As you can imagine, Amazon comment activists latched onto that. <laughs> I want that to be a new badge. <laughs> you know, I'm an a- Amazon comment activist. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Oh, Andy, I think we're really building an ecosystem around Amazon as, as a primary social network. I'm very excited about this. It's going to be a great summer. It's Facebook when you have this. <laughs> That's right. Just Amazon comments. Do you know what? That's the new quit, uh, Facebook Twitter. Is I'm I'm an Amazon winner. Hashtag Amazon winner. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. Today. 